0: The opening chapters of the opening book of the Bible are some of the most well-known stories in the world. Maybe that's because many people start and don't really get much further. We're going to spend some time covering these familiar stories, but perhaps discover some unfamiliar things along the way. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, and this is the second class in this year's course on the Christian Old Testament. We're covering this important book of scripture for a primarily Latter-day Saint audience, welcome to our class on the primeval history of Genesis 1-11. to Genesis means beginning, and it's the Greek name for the first book of the Christian Pentateuch or Jewish Torah. Pentateuch means five scrolls, while Torah refers to law or teaching. The collection of the first five books of the Bible. There are four major stories in these opening chapters. The creation including the accounts of the first humans, the stories of Cain and Abel and the foundation of civilizations, the flood and new beginnings, and finally the story of the Tower of Babel. These are important texts for Christians, Jews, and Muslims. More so for Latter-day Saints, because there are additional texts in the LDS canon that discuss many of these same stories. There are additional accounts of creation in the books of Moses and Abraham. There are stories that expand on the origins of civilization in the Book of Moses, with special emphasis on a character named Enoch. And of course, the Book of Mormon offers an account of some new characters around the Tower of Babel, who found the Jaredite civilization in the New World. So these stories and the primary history are expanded and even altered in a number of important ways in LDS tradition and text. Now, each of these is a huge and important topic, and we can't cover all of the details, but we will get into some of the major topics in the history, genre, themes, and interpretation of these texts. Let's dive in. Part 1 history. The Old Testament purports to describe events from thousands of years before the text was written. Going off of the internal history, it runs from approximately 4000 BCE to the early 2000s, nearly two millennia packed into these first 11 chapters. But when was this text actually written, and who wrote it? These questions continue to occupy scholars. The tradition developed sometime during the Hellenistic period that Moses was the author. That would date these texts to being written around the 1200s BCE. However, this date doesn't really work, and the supposed authorship doesn't either. Formally, the text is anonymous, and most ancient texts were. The text makes no claim to who the author is. In fact, there doesn't seem to be just one author at all. In these opening chapters, there seem to be two or three distinct authors who wrote parts of the book at different time periods, and those writings were later collected and shaped into the form that we have now. These same authors cover much of the same material, often from different perspectives, in the first four books of the Pentateuch. There are fierce debates about when exactly these texts may be dated, with what antecedents are behind them, The dates typically range from the 7th century to the 4th century BCE in their final form, though there are some reasons to believe that there are elements that date even earlier and that the original compilation of these texts may have occurred at various stages along the way as well. But even behind these, there may be oral traditions which are even earlier. It's hard to tell for sure since they reflect the times in which they're actually written down. This relatively late date is notable, in part because, as important as these stories are in Jewish and Christian tradition, they aren't really referenced very much in the rest of the texts of the Old Testament. In fact, these stories have nothing to do with the messages of the prophets or later histories. There are even different creation stories in other parts of the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish uh, Old Testament, the, the, sorry, the Christian Old Testament. The Psalms, Job, and Isaiah, reference a primordial battle between God and a sea dragon as the creation story. For instance, Psalms 74, 13, and 14 praises God in this way, It is you who drove back the sea with your might, who smashed the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan. This seems to indicate an earlier creation story which comes from an earlier period than was Genesis. Another thing is also clear. Many of the stories in the primeval history, most importantly creation, the first humans, and the flood, can be found in similar forms in other texts from the region of Southwest Asia. The Epic of Gilgamesh, Enuma Elish, Atrahasis, and others predate the Israelite records and include a number of very similar stories. That helps us to understand how the Israelites belonged to a broader regional culture that took an interest in such origin stories and recounted the deeds of their gods in such stories. Here's where we begin to see some of the key differences in the history told in the LDS canon. According to the Book of Moses, Moses is the author of these chapters who received a version of these passages in the form of a revelation directly from God. The Book of Moses is actually part of Joseph Smith's new translation project that he took up in 1830 and 1831. It covers from creation up to the beginning of the flood story in chapter 6 of Genesis. There are a number of important features of this text including its most lengthy expansion of the Genesis account in the story of Enoch. From a historical perspective, this one has long been a puzzle since it seemed that it drew on many similar themes of ancient stories around Enoch as well. I'll just reference a recent article by Colby Townsend, Revisiting Joseph Smith and the Availability of the Book of Enoch in the fall 2020 issue of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought for some breakthrough discussion of this textual question. The Book of Abraham offers a different account. Here, Abraham received a version of Genesis 1 and 2 centuries before Moses. Joseph Smith produced the Book of Abraham after receiving a number of Egyptian papyri from a traveling show of Egyptian antiquities in Ohio and completed and published the project in the Nauvoo period it's probably best to understand the books of Moses and Abraham as revelations to Joseph Smith, prophetic commentary on these important chapters, rather than providing new historical information about the sources of the Genesis text. For Latter-day Saints, they reveal important new interpretations and context for these chapters. Genre What kinds of texts are these, and how do they relate to similar kinds of texts? Well, we know that these are written in prose rather than epic poetry, as many other similar stories are. We also know that these are narratives. For these accounts in the primeval history, there are really two genres that I want to mention that I think helps to make sense of some of this. The first genre is myth. This can be a contested category since it's often used pejoratively to say that something isn't true. But a myth is just a story that is not historical, but that conveys important values and messages for a particular community. Myths were ways that lots of ancient cultures told stories about the gods, their relationship with humanity, cosmic conflicts, and more. The ancient Israelites communicated their stories about God in similar ways. That is, myths are narratives. This is not a philosophical proof of God's existence, or a moral tract, or a list of do's and don'ts. It uses narrative to communicate a message. And again, we can compare the myths in Genesis 1-11 to other regional versions, including the Epic of Gilgamesh, Enuma Elish, and Atrahasis. That brings us to another genre that I want to highlight, etiology. This might not be a word that you're familiar with, so let's define it. Ideology is defined as the investigation or attribution of the cause or reasons for something, often expressed in terms of historical or mythical explanation. Well, what does that mean? Basically, an etiology is all about the causes or origins of something. Why do humans speak so many languages if we all come from a shared source? Why are there rainbows? Why do we offer sacrifices? Ideologies, like those found in the primeval history then, offer explanations for why things are the way they are. This combination of myth and ideology can help us to orient how first millennium BCE Israelites would have talked about God's relationship with the world, which sets up the ideologies that come next, explaining God's relationship with Israel from their ancestors. Over time, especially in the modern period, These myths have been confused with actual history or even science. But these aren't what these texts are. The modern genres of history with evidence and even scientific explanations simply weren't available to ancient authors. So we have to understand these stories on their terms. The final thing that I'll mention with respect to genre is something that we've already discussed, that there are multiple authors behind these texts and that they spread out over time. That means that the texts as we read them are composites. The most well-known instance of this is the first two chapters of Genesis, which actually represent two different creation stories. Readers over the centuries have puzzled over Genesis 1-1, when Elohim creates the heaven and the earth, follows a careful plan, but then in Genesis 2:4, a new name appears with Yahweh, the modern pronunciation of Jehovah, Yahweh Elohim, translated as the Lord God, creates the earth and the heavens, and the whole thing starts all over again, this time in a different order than what happened in chapter 1. There's more than just a different order of events or different names for God in these two stories, but also a different depiction of God, one that is more detached, one that's more anthropomorphic, one that's highly structured around a sacred week, and the other, that doesn't concern itself too much with time. One loves puns, the other not so much, and so on. There are wildly different styles and unique uses of phrases that allow us to pull apart the different strands of the different sources here. This approach to the Bible, called source criticism, is its own specialized study and we're not going to spend too much time on it now. But we can be familiar with at least why some stories are told twice, from a slightly different perspective, and so on. When it comes to the LDS versions of these stories in Moses and Abraham, we're dealing with a slight shift in genre. Moses' account of these early Genesis chapters, for instance, is connected to ideas of authorship in order to secure its authenticity. Further, these aren't just myths or ideologies told from a hidden narrator, but they become revelations, even apocalypses, that look backwards and forwards into the future. This shift in genre offers new perspectives on these stories by giving them authors rather than the anonymous versions that we get in Genesis 1-11 and adding further authority to the expansions and changes in these texts to the Genesis version. Understanding these genres of the texts helps us to get past some of the misconceptions in some approaches to these stories, that they're supposed to be read as actual history or worse, scientific accounts of creation as we've mentioned. It's useful to step back and ask, what kind of a story are we reading? What is it trying to communicate to its ancient readers? And what literary tools is it using? When we look at the opening chapters of Genesis, we detect myths, etiologies, and more. Themes. Identifying the themes of the primeval history chapters of Genesis can really aid our understanding of these texts. Sometimes this requires, again, a little discipline and patience. We're so familiar with these stories that we think we know what they mean, but those received meanings are often filtered through layer upon layer of popular interpretation. So what can a careful reading reveal here? First, let's start with our genres as a clue to some themes. Etiologies, or origin myths, are a frequent feature of these stories. These cover things like why snakes don't have legs, why childbirth is painful, and why humans have to farm for their food. But it also explains why some peoples are good with musical instruments, or metallurgy or nomadic herders. That is, the civilizational ideologies are here as well. So these stories don't really have a moral or ritual point, but some do. For instance, in that first creation story in chapter 1, which ends at the beginning of chapter 2, there's an etiology of the Sabbath day. Second, many of these narratives communicate a message about the spread of human wickedness. It turns out that according to these origin stories, humans really like to disobey God and hurt one another. From the story of the first humans in chapters two and three, to the fratricide of Cain and Abel, to the flood, to the Tower of Babel, these stories are about the decline of humanity into greater and greater sin and divine displeasure. But here the text reveals another important theme. Much of what we can describe as the sins of humanity in these opening chapters is the blurring of boundaries between gods and humans. These sins are about human ambition and transgression of these boundaries. The snake promises that eating the fruit will make them like the gods and they partake. The Tower of Babel is also a key example of this theme of humans building a tower to invade the heavenly abode of God. But even the strange story that sets up the flood is another key example of this theme of transgressing the boundary between gods and humans. In the first few verses of chapter 6, we see a story about divine beings, the sons of God, who come down and procreate with human women and produce a race of giants, the Nephilim. After this, God sees the wickedness of humanity and floods the earth. But it's hard not to see that this generation of demigods is another transgression between the divine and the human, resulting in yet another punishment on humanity. At the same time, it's also about new beginnings, as humanity is also saved from itself. Another important theme is curses and covenants. The serpent is cursed, as are Adam and Eve. But there are two curses that I want to discuss here. The first is the curse of Cain. For Cain's murderous deed, the text says that the Lord put a mark on him. This has often been interpreted in racial terms. However, notably the text does not say that Cain was cursed Instead, the mark, an ambiguous word in Hebrew, may indicate God's protection, which is why the curse is actually placed on anyone who murders Cain after Cain received God's mercy. The second curse that I want to mention is the curse of Ham, the son of Noah. After the flood, Noah plants a vineyard and gets drunk. Remember, these aren't moral stories here. While in a drunken state, The text says that Ham, quote, saw his father's nakedness and told his brothers. His brothers then walk into the tent backwards and cover Noah. When Noah wakes up, he curses Ham's son, Canaan, the ancestor of the Canaanites, the indigenous people in the land of Israel, to be, quote, the lowest of slaves to his brothers. This notion of a curse of Ham was a major proof text in the defense of American slavery, and took on a life of its own. But the idea is a modern one, and a number of interpretive leaps have to be made to make Ham the ancestor of black Africa, which is not made here. It's best to see this as a modern invention rather than something in the text or in antiquity, including much of the racialized categories developed in the modern era. At the same time, the idea that certain lineages are blessed and cursed does show up in the Bible, including here. And we'll spend some more time talking about these in our upcoming lessons. What about the themes in the LDS canon? There's a lot to mention, but I'll focus on a few. The first is Christianization. Joseph Smith's extended versions of these Genesis accounts Add in a number of explicitly Christian concepts that are missing from the original Genesis. Of course, Christians have read these texts as their own and imported Christian concepts into them from a very early stage. The opening lines of the Gospel of John, for instance, offer a rereading of the creation account with Jesus in it. Joseph Smith's texts continue this by introducing the only begotten and other Christological titles into the narrative. I'll include an identification with the serpent of the serpent as Satan as another example of the Christianization of this text. There's also an explicit addition of reading the story of Adam and Eve as a fall and the introduction of the doctrine of the atonement of Christ in Joseph Smith's version. Indeed, animal sacrifice is interpreted as a type of Christ here. Other prophecies about Christ abound in the section on Enoch, who offers a vision of the future up to the second coming of Christ. Needless to say, these Christian details are anachronistic, but represent a major theme of Joseph Smith's new translation. Another major theme is harmonization. In Smith's version, even though he's introducing a number of changes to Genesis and his own versions in Moses and Abraham are not consistent with one another, he's offering solutions to confusing parts of Genesis. Why are there two creation stories, for instance? Smith's translation in the Book of Moses says that the first is spiritual and the second is material. Why does God first create animals as Adam's helpmeet and then create Eve in Genesis? Well, the Book of Moses changes the order so that Eve is created before the animals. These changes are often resolving duplications or differences between the sources behind these early chapters. There's one other theme worth mentioning in Smith's translation, agency. There are a couple of extended comments here in Joseph Smith's texts that drive this point home. First, there's a prequel to the garden scene, a war in heaven where Satan attempts to get the glory of God in exchange for saving all of humanity. This is Moses chapter four, verses one to four. This is a new story not found elsewhere in the Bible. Next, there is a post-lapsarian scene where Adam and Eve discuss the fall as a good thing because now they have knowledge and agency and can choose for themselves. interpretation. A great deal has been said about these opening chapters in Genesis. They've also been used to justify patriarchy, racism, and more. One reason is because these myths are always being reinterpreted to fit the time in which they are being read. We can even go back, before these texts were written, to the other Mesopotamian myths, which come even earlier and are adapted into Israelite culture. And we don't even have just one version of them. There are multiple sources behind these texts, which, when separated apart, tell different stories of creation, the flood, and more. At various times in Jewish and Christian history, these stories have been reinterpreted and even retold, expanded, and more. And the stories are not consistent with one another. There are so many reinterpretations and adaptations that it can help us to make sense of Joseph Smith's translations and additions to these stories. Rather than ending up with constrained text or fixed interpretations about gender, evolution, and more that's crashed into us in our era, The history of interpretation and multiple versions of these stories, even from Joseph Smith, suggest multiple possibilities and adaptations that are available to us. I, for one, can't wait to see how we might continue to critically investigate these texts and read them in new ways. Thank you for taking this journey with me, and for taking the journey through Dialogue, and for all your support. If you want to subscribe or donate to Dialogue, you can do so at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. This episode was written by me, with editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith, and images by our social media manager, Adam McLean. Our content manager is Emily Jensen, The Dialogue Courses series is produced by the Dialogue Foundation. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Check out Fireside with Blair Hodges, Beyond the Block, At Last She Said It, Bristlecone Firesides, Funeral Potatoes at the Singles Ward, and our newest addition to the network, So You Want to Talk About Mormonism, and more. Check out all the shows at dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. See you next time.